All right. So welcome everybody to Architect Network number 23. Let's talk extraterrestrial architecture with Biggs uh, Julian, or as I say, it should say Julian Ocampo Salazar. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, sounded good to me. Thanks so much for spending the time. I think this is, uh, we've been meaning to do a space one for a little, a, a little while now, actually. But uh, I think this is a kind of a nice timing since uh, our recent project was just released and uh, we've done a couple an, another projects as well. So I thought uh, it's a good time to, to talk space. <laughs> so uh, maybe to give you a little bit, uh, the audience, a little bit of an introduction to yourself, Julian, uh, and feel free to add to this afterwards. Um, so yeah, Julian is a fellow Bigster. He's a senior designer here at the big New York office. Uh, he's also the now in-house uh, space architect or space architect. I think you should get your you should get a new title as space architect or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I was just looking. It's one of those things that like you know when you work with people in the office, you don't always know. You know, I've browsed across their LinkedIn profile and and like looked at their background. But you, it seems like you've got quite an interesting background. You've definitely like traveled a lot as an architect. Um, I know you you're originally Colombian, but it looks like you've worked for um, you know, in Spain, uh, in Canada, in the U.S., in uh, Amsterdam, in Copenhagen. You worked for a bit at Big uh, in Copenhagen, and now you, you work here in New York. But you've also worked at places like MDR, DV, DSR, and a little bit of time at Shop. Um, so yeah, it seems like you've definitely traveled as an architect, yeah. right? Yeah, this is all true. Um, I I moved around a lot when I just sort of was a recent graduate. Um, you know, I just wanted to see how different people design different things, and then I ended up moving around a lot. Um, you know, f- uh, in Spain, actually, I worked with Cel Gascano. Um, during that time, we I sort of moved to Nairobi and lived there for like four months while we were building a project. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, you just, uh, it's a lot of spots. But yeah, it, it's, uh, I think it was like a sort of a conscious decision to learn a lot uh, while you're, your life's still really flexible and you can just move around. Yeah, that's one thing I definitely recommend. And in fact, when, when Kai was doing the talk, that was his biggest recommendation for young architects is to travel. Um, I did a similar thing. I've been away for almost 10 years, but I kind of set bases in uh, in Hong Kong and then traveled from Hong Kong and then New York, then went back to London and then came back to New York and stuff. So yeah, any young architects out there, be sure to... Uh, yeah, I think it's one of one of those professions where you can actually travel quite easily. Whereas, like a lawyer or a doctor or something like that, like you're you're kind of constrained by the license being very local. Whereas architects, especially as design architects, you're you're very free to move around. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was probably one of the things that drew me to architecture in the first place, which is the ability. Like your skill set is more or less universal, uh, so you're able to travel a lot, and in that traveling, learn a lot about the people. Uh, you know, and the places that you live in just through basically having to design for them, right? Like, it's very interesting, like, the different sort of uh, standards that people have for how steep, for example, uh, uh, um, uh, a staircase is or how, you know, how big your shower should be or whatever, you know? So, and then, you know, through that sort of traveling, you start to realize that the human condition is, like, super flexible, yeah, so that, very adaptable. You know what I mean? Super adaptable. So it eliminates a lot of barriers for for anyone, I think. 
uh, on understanding like what things can be and wh where the sort of boundaries are for, for what, what is good. Yeah, I've definitely noticed exactly. Yeah, we're very adaptable, but also very similar. I feel like people are just driven by the same thing. You know, it's 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 amazing how similar we are, but also different. If that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Like people generally want the same things. You want right. a little bit of privacy. You, you know, you want like uh, yeah. So you want those things. You want to be sort of respected. You know, all this other stuff. Uh, but then you know the the the, the kind of standards are very different. Uh, when I was living in Nairobi, I went to a bar in this area called, uh, um, what, was the, what was the name? It's one of the largest um, informal settlements in Africa. Um, so it's, uh, the place is absolutely insane. Uh, and so we went to a bar there, and the bar is in, in the third floor of one of these like very hastily made shacks right it's a it's a it's you can imagine it's an informal settlement settlement so we're on the third floor and then we're just like all right so where do we go to the washroom and then it's like you just go over there and then you go there and you enter and you're immediately in like a shower and then like and you're just like all right <laughs> so basically you're standing in the urinal that is sometimes a shower for someone else you know what i mean yeah, uh, yeah. So it's like that kind of thing. You're just like, oof, this isn't. This would not be possible in other places. But it, it, it still works. It's still a shower. You know, it's still a yeah. urinal. So, yeah, interesting. And then, of course, I mean, that kind of ties in nicely to you maybe having an ambition to travel beyond Earth. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, you've you've kind of become the the space architect of the office over the last, I guess it was a year or year or two. Um, you know, you've been working on our two recent space projects in collaboration with, with NASA and ICON. And how did that come up? Like, did you have an ambition to be a, uh, <laughs> did you have like an interest in space or it just kind of, kind of happened? That is, I mean, I, that, that, I mean, that is such a coincidence because I didn't really have any kind of particular sort of curiosity towards space. Uh, you know, I've had all kinds of curiosity about other things, but I had never sort of uh, fixated on, on, on space. You weren't like but doing uh, space camps as a kid and stuff like that? No, <laughs> none of that. I mean, none of that. So, But then what happened was that we, with ICON, um, together sort of formulated this project for, uh, for NASA, for the Project Olympus, what became Project Olympus, which would be the first... Uh, permanently sort of occupied building or permanent structure built outside of planet Earth. Um, and so ICON is um, an additive manufacturing company, so basically uh, a 3D printing company. Um, and then uh, my background, my sort of academic background, benefited me uh, in that I went to MIT for my master's in architecture, and when I was, while I was at MIT, I worked a lot on the Fab Lab. I was a Fab Lab monitor. And I was, so I was always around sort of uh, additive manufacturing and, uh, and just fabrication in general. And so that background sort of prepared me for, the, for, 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 the, for what would be the kind of juncture of those two things, right? Fabrication, additive manufacturing, and then design. 
Um, and and then the, the kind of challenge just came into the office, and, and they thought that I would be a good match for this. So I started working on it, and then it became sort of a um, a passion of mine where learning more about the subject. And the more you start learning about what it took to go to the moon, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that happens on the moon, the environment on the moon, and all this other stuff, you get really interested in in, in how it all works. Yeah, I can totally see that. It's like, a, I mean, it's such a specialized thing. I mean, in the office as well, you can work on so many different things. But, you know, once you develop that knowledge, because it's, it's not like you're designing for down the street in Manhattan or something. It's <laughs> No, no, it's, yeah, exactly. It's like very, and there's, you know, there's probably, I don't know, five architects in the world who can, right. you know, say that. I know that uh, there's this, uh, this other office based, I think it's based out of Australia and of London, Hassel. Yeah, uh, Hassel are into space. Uh, I mean, Hassel. Foster's yeah. doing a bit of space stuff. Exactly, a little bit. Is, but it's not, it's, you know, it's not a very common thing to do yeah. in, a, in a sort of serious uh, way, you know? Because, there, you know, there's a lot of sort of proposals that show up like, oh, yeah, there's going to be like a floating hotel, uh, orbiting hotel or whatever. But it doesn't have the kind of heft and and, and, yeah, and research sort of base that uh, that the others or or, yeah. or or sort of possibility, uh, you know, seriousness uh, than other than these other uh, projects have. There's a lot of Instagram space architecture. Like I don't exactly. know if you saw there was there was a recent one I think a month or two ago of like embedding habitats into this cliff on Mars. I think it was or the Moon. And, uh, you know, it was obviously like provocative, but you just think of the challenges of just getting there. And then you've got to like, and it's like quick, sometimes it's like glass everywhere and all yeah. kinds of stuff. And you're just like, dude, <laughs> this is not even, you know, that's and the, 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 like the gulf between real, the reality of the Mars environment and the possibility of having like this kind of structure there is so vast that it doesn't even you know sort of make sense, um, which is what we were fighting against in our projects, which is how do we keep that gulf to a minimum, right? So that the conditions on the moon, for example, uh, are like basically what we're designing is very close. It's at least the next step between what we have now and what can be a habitat. So we don't want to design something that is so far out to become almost kind of technologically and sort of logically impossible. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about, um, you know, the projects in the office is it's about what's, and it's still, you know, as a technology side, we're, we're obviously testing new tools and stuff like that. But, you know, I think the way that we approach things, it either has to work like right now or very, very near in the future, not like, you know, um, thinking about what, what's going to happen in 10, 20 years. Although that's obviously a part of it as well. But um, yeah, there definitely seems to be two trends of like architecture firms getting into the space world. And then also there's like a few specific architecture space startup uh, companies. Like I think there's one called AI Space Builds or something like that, mm. where they're actually, um, I think they were trying to build a 3D printed habitat in upstate New York, but uh, I think it kind of stopped or something like that. But um, 
Yeah, it's kind yeah, of interesting I mean, to see these two, like this new niche. Yeah, but you do know why that happens, though, no? Like, I'm, I can, like, basically, uh, throughout the history of uh, lunar exploration and, and space exploration, um, it has not been possible to sort of think of the moon as a, um, as a permanent habitat or a place where you can permanently be there because uh, there was no water, right? So, and we need water to live. So um, it was only until 2009 that uh, there was a discovery made on uh, water on the north and south poles of the moon. Uh, and then further sort of studies, and now in 2019, I think it was a, an Indian sort of probe that confirmed the, the, the kind of presence of that water uh, on, the, on, on the south and north poles, so on the permanently shaded regions of the north and south poles of the moon. So basically the presence of water makes it so that it is a lot more likely that we will eventually have a base on the moon. Uh, because without water, we just can't exist. And, and bringing water to the moon, that the cost of transportation would be so great that it would be sort of basically make it impossible um, to do that, you know, to sort of be there permanently uh, and be ferrying water from the Earth to the moon would just not, um, would just not work. Is there, um, is there also a sort of artificial atmosphere is being created for for this because i know obviously the moon doesn't have a, an atmosphere right so is there some sort of um artificial atmosphere that's going to be created as an urban district perhaps or i don't going to be sort of in suits sort i mean of i don't I, mean, I i don't think so i think it's going to be very limited sort of uh pressurized vessels right so either and by vessel i mean the habitat or the transportation vessels that you will be using to move around the moon um because uh it's just such a great sort of uh difficulty to build there at least with in the near future uh, that any sort of great structure is already prohibitive and so um, and the pressurization that is needed on the moon is so kind of great that it would be extremely difficult to create a large uh, uh, structure like a sort of, sort of uh, like a like a dome, for example, to create our own your own sort of atmosphere within that dome. Uh, that would just be uh, extremely difficult. And to just have an atmosphere on the entire moon would just be, uh, you know, I, I think. Um, impossible, at least uh, the, w the way that it is being thought about now. And the other thing is this, um, the moon is not being thought of as a, a place to go and sort of inhabit permanently. Uh, so the, the current thinking is that you would use the moon as a sort of launching pad for further exploration, right? So if uh, you have water, that means that you have uh, an element that you can split into oxygen and hydrogen. And then uh, with that, you can create oxygen for breathing or leaving, and then also hydrogen as a sort of fuel for rockets, right, and for further kind of exploration. So what would happen is that you create a kind of uh, a base uh, from which you can, you know, uh, fill your rockets and take off in a much more uh, in a much more sort of fuel efficient way 
than if you were to do so from Earth, because the gravity on Earth uh, on the Moon is about one sixth of the gravity of Earth. So that means that you you know to just get out, you would just need uh, uh, one sixth of the fuel. So all of that just makes it so that it's much more likely that if we end up going to the moon, we would use the moon as a sort of trampoline or launching pad for further exploration, not to actually just try to turn it into a second Earth. Yeah, that's super super cool. Um, yeah, I, I I can I can only imagine how many um, students would love to you know uh, go down this path of designing on on different planets. And I know there's a lot of students in the audience, so. I do want to ask two questions um, that might be relevant here. Uh, how much how much unlearning do you have to do in order to sort of design for the moon? Because obviously we kind of spend five to seven years learning uh, specifically to design for the Earth, right? Everything from the site conditions to the gravity to the atmosphere to the materials available here. So how much of that do you kind of have to throw out the window and approach it with fresh eyes? Or do you use the same um, approach and methodology for that? You you sort of use uh, your curiosity and your and and your uh, your knowledge to to kind of propel you forward, right? But yes, the conditions are absolutely different. But one, it's interesting. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the things that we did at first uh, when we started designing for the moon was to look at environments here on Earth uh, that have this sort of vernacular architecture that basically builds with elements from that site. So, you know, igloos for the Inuit or, uh, or, or these sort of um, houses in North Africa that, that are sort of dug uh, from, from the ground and have incredibly thick walls and all this kind of stuff, right? So what we're trying to do is, uh, when we go to the moon, obviously, is what we're going to do is try to take as much advantage of what we will find there. So... Um, you basically have to try to learn from the human experience so far what works in terms of taking advantage of, 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 of the resources that you find um, and then uh, and then sort of extrapolate that to the moon okay so you know what what resources do we have here uh, how does this whole gravity thing impact you know our kind of space design obviously uh, you have to have like taller ceilings, otherwise you're going to be banging your head against every time that you take a step, right? Because uh, a sixth of the Earth, uh, uh, the gravity having a sixth of the uh, gravity of Earth means that if any little sort of jump that you make or any little step is going to send you six times as far or six times as high. So you have to start thinking about all these things. But I, the biggest thing that you have to think about, which we haven't even discussed yet, will be the uh, the radiation that you get on the moon, uh, the kind of cosmic radiation. Um, so there are so many other things that you have to think about uh, when you're designing for space compared to what you think about when you're designing uh, for Earth. So you basically have to have the skills that you get in school and then start adding to those skills a whole bunch of other things. Um, it gets really interesting, actually, when you start thinking about, it, about uh, our sort of lunar base as an extension of our uh, vernacular architecture. I think it was cool to see. Uh, I remember one of the projects had like a giant basketball net that was <laughs> that was oh yeah <laughs> ten foot high or something. It'd be wicked to have like a space Olympics where you'd just be destroying 
the long jump, the high jump, and. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, every, like you, everybody would be Michael Jordan out there. Uh, just like jump and like stay floating on air, on the, on the air. Yeah. I like the consideration. Yeah. You just wake up in the morning, make yourself a cup of tea and you take like a slightly bigger step and you're, you're flying into the ceiling because <laughs> you've forgotten to design that. <laughs> exactly. Seat. Then you, then, then you have to, then you have to start thinking about like, all right. Uh, we can't have those many, like as many kind of sharp corners everywhere. <laughs> Because then your ability to control your movement is going to be so sort of, you know, kind of awkward at first. So you have to sort of figure out how to, how to, uh, uh, yeah. uh, how to not bang it's your head like against things it and how to protect. childproof in a way. But. Exactly, in a way, yeah. Because we're all going to be sort of learning how to how to move our bodies yeah. up there. Yeah, I think that's. Um, that's a kind of interesting point to to maybe move on to. Um, actually, Faisal, did you have a second question, or or you want to? Um, okay, yeah. So my second question was um, earlier you talked about sort of moving in these vessels, right? I'm just kind of thinking about what impact that would have on society, because obviously we kind of get used to gathering in large large amounts. Although you know, pre-COVID, of course, uh, gathering in these large large arenas and stadiums and you know conference halls and all that so that isn't going to be possible obviously in in an environment like that so what kind of effect is it going to have on human beings and our sort of societies and social functions i mean that's interesting because the you know i think the like the character of the of 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 the lunar habitats that uh, the way that they have been they are being conceived is not as a replacement for for Earth, right, or for our current habitats, as much as it is as a as going to be like a, as I, I said slightly earlier, you know, a jumping uh, a jumping point. So, like smaller facilities, um, in in kind of smaller sort of like the kind of stuff that you have, for example, in Antarctica, uh, where you have these uh, smaller vessels. But then, if you start adding them up, it is possible. That you start getting, you know, um, kind of bigger, uh, larger spaces, and I think uh, that might happen. You know, it might. Uh, it, we might be able. I think that the, the as we get better at doing this, at, at building stuff uh, outside of Earth, then it might happen that we that we're able to build like slightly larger spaces or for more gathering spaces and all this stuff, but. The initial thought is not to have the moon sort of replace Earth. Um, I think that's not that's not the idea. It's to just have moon as a as a kind of uh, stepping stone or like a like a much smaller base, not a place where we would go and create like a fully formed city where an entire society would work. Um, so, so from that point, I think the 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 kind of social aspects will remain uh, mostly on Earth, and then. Uh, the moon would have a, a slightly different sort of function. I, I don't know if that. I hope that answers the question. No, yeah, that that uh, definitely answers the question. And uh, yeah. you know, I, it sparked another question I have, which is, um, um I guess how how much um, how much astrophysics do you have to learn in order to sort of design for the moon? Because it feels like you almost have to learn a whole new discipline as an architect, right? to start designing for, for a completely different planet. So, yeah. 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 I mean, so basically when we were working on our lunar project, uh, we went through, I think it was about a month and a half or two months 
where we didn't really design anything. We were mostly just reading, uh, re reading the uh, all the the papers that NASA published. Because it, it's actually kind of amazing how uh, how much information NASA has to put out into the world as uh, public information. There, all of their like studies of um, the characteristics of uh, the lunar regolith, the temperature characteristics of lunar regolith, the, um, the kind of radiation uh, mitigation properties of lunar regolith, the um, earthquake, uh, lunar quakes, I guess. <laughs> um, all this information, the chemical comp composition of, um, of lunar regolith, uh, all of the studies done by the Apollo missions, all this other stuff is it's out there on the NASA website. It's online. You can go look it up. Um, so we basically spent a good two months looking through that. Also continuously sort of sharing our conclusions with uh, the team at NASA that was uh, sort of coordinating the project with us. And, and then so we got uh, to talk to a few uh, experts within NASA that know a lot about cosmic radiation, for example, know a lot about regolith composition. So we talked to their star, uh, what is it, planetary geologist, um, who was just an amazing person to have as a resource. So we were sort of learning all of this stuff. You know, the things that you learn here on Earth that are a little sort of uh, uh, instinctual, things that you just learn, you know, just because... Yeah, grass, oh yeah, that's green. Or like, yeah, mountains, oh, the mountains have this shape. Or, you know, oh, dust, oh, dust behaves this way, or sand behaves this way, right? So none of that applies because the sand on Earth on, is extremely different from the, from the sand uh, on the moon or what, what is called lunar regolith. So uh, we basically had to sort of relearn everything uh, from, from not only looking at NASA papers, but also talking to people who know a lot about this stuff um, and then sort of like basically start from scratch on, okay, so for example, like this lump angle on lunar regolith is much uh, steeper than it is on, on, on uh, terrestrial kind of sand. So things of that nature, you just have to like and kind of learn uh, from, from, from the experts. And it's funny because like you think about, okay, so what does it matter the, the slump angle of the lunar regolith, or what does it matter, the slump angle on, of, of sand? Like, who cares? But uh, when you're building on the moon, uh, the behavior of your material, so which is the lunar regolith, is extremely, extremely important. And um, since what you're, the only thing you're going to have is this lunar regolith, you're going to have to use that, that regolith for everything. So you use it for building your walls, you use it for shielding yourself from... Uh, radiation from cosmic radiation you're going to use it to build your roads you, you know so you have to sort of learn everything there is to learn about uh, that one material so yeah i mean we did we did have to basically uh, start from from scratch and learning all these you, things you basically went to space school for a couple months <laughs> yeah exactly we did and, and and we and we had the best teachers that you can have i mean and the people at nasa were so uh, accommodating and so generous with their knowledge and so sort of excited and happy to be uh, sharing all that they know. Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing group of people. Um, so, and 
they're generally very happy to to kind of share their knowledge with you and that, uh, I'm so very very thankful for that yeah I mean it's super cool when you were just presenting it in the office to learn a lot about like just the stuff just bits of what you guys had learned about uh, that was super interesting but um I think it's we're in this kind of new interesting era of this new space right race white right between various billionaires and NASA and SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin, uh, you know, reigniting this ambition to go back to the moon and Mars. And when you talk about it, not many people are like, oh, what has that got to do with, with architecture? And like, we've kind of, you know, answered that question already a little bit. But one thing people always kind of say or ask is like, you know, shouldn't we be focusing on, on Earth before we, we look beyond it? But I think people don't quite grasp, for example, the the race to the to the moon, the technology that was developed from that is just, you know, trickled down into so many, so many different things. And this kind of huge goal, uh, you know, expedites construction, uh, construction of technology in many, many different industries. And one that we've kind of touched on a little bit already, that's, you know, very applicable is, is kind of 3D printing, right? And, or additive manufacturing. Um, what are your thoughts on, on 3D printing at the moment? Because I was definitely, if you asked me this maybe a couple years ago, I was like, I think it's really cool. I'm definitely excited about it on a small scale. But I was like, I just don't see us printing, you know, real buildings or like even just a home anytime soon. But then, you know, having seen companies like Icon and Branch Technology showing that they can like, they can actually print stuff today that's that's usable i was like wow this technology is actually moving way faster than i than i thought um but yeah having having done yeah. some some designing kind of in that space what do you think of 3d 3d printing yeah no i mean i think it's uh it's an, an extreme it's like super kind of exciting segment of the construction industry uh companies like icon for example they have already uh, basically, they built they they built the first uh, 3D printed uh, house in the United States, the first kind of permitted 3D printed house in the U.S. Um, and so it's not a fantasy, of course. And this thing and, and their technology is sort of jumping kind of leaps, um, and they keep making bigger and better printers. Uh, so I think it's a really exciting technology to continue to sort of to 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 work with and to and to explore, uh, those guys are doing incredible things, and the applications are just totally uh, kind of amazing in terms of speed, in terms of uh, what you can do with it, and how it sort of it continuously sort of expands the boundaries of what you can do with with the three D printing technology. Um, I'm very excited for the future of that, um, and. Uh, I, yes, as you said, like a few years back, you would be like, well, this is kind of gimmicky. It doesn't sound applicable. But, you know, just go look at their houses that they have built. Um, and, and and there's a few projects here within the office that we have because we have a, an extensive collaboration with Icon. Um, and there are a few projects within the office that are basically looking at that, right? So some of them look at the really long-term future of 3D printing. So, you know... What if we 3D printed everything? Uh, and some of them look at a shorter future of 3D printing, which is like, all right, how do we embed 3D printing and the, 3D, the logic of 3D printing into current, um, 
building uh, uh, design, right? So how do we merge the current sort of techniques of building with 3D printing? So why can 3D printing sort of um, uh, replace uh, as we move uh, sort of slowly inch towards uh, a fully 3D printed sort of environment? So I think, and I think that's where the most interesting part of it is, which is the, the, this kind of super weird mixture of 3D printed and and and, and 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 current sort of technology and current techniques, you know, um, where it's like a weird mix that if you don't know if it's each, it, like, you know, and I think that's where a lot of innovation is going to be happening within the next 10, 10 years. Yeah, it's it's definitely moving way quicker, quicker than I thought, and it's, it's an exciting space. I think it's that both 3D printing and, you know, this, this idea of, of creating uh, – buildings on on the moon and mars i think it's like edging us back towards being a, a true architect like a, a master builder you know the 3d printing on on earth you've got that that image or that idea of like what you design you could literally control p and actually <laughs> print the thing to to the machine and we could reconnect with that act of making um one of the other things i was gonna ask or like you know kind of make an observation of was i thought that like when you, when you've presented the the Olympus projects and the the more recent uh, Mars Habitat thing, like the Olympus projects for me, I, I loved because it was just like um, it seems to be getting back to that mix of architecture and engineering. Or you know, an architect is is the center between an artist and an engineer, right? You you kind of an architect is is that character in the middle, and I feel like a lot of as architects and as you know a lot of you come out of university you're kind of more towards that art ends and like you know we're almost like creating provocative images and all that kind of stuff but it seems like you know when you're designing for things on the moon and mars like it has to be that perfect balance of like these things have to perform a certain way and do certain things so how did how did that feel like to kind of transition i guess everything is so um you know, driven or engineered based or, or kind of, uh, function based. Um, I thought the the Olympic project was a great example of that. Yeah. It's, it's funny cause, uh, I mean, I, you're totally right. It, it, there is not, there's not a lot of room for sort of, uh, balancing performance against, uh, against aesthetic, right. On that, because, we were presenting that project, uh, the Olympus project, in front of astronauts, in front of, um, you know, the NASA headquarters, in front of people who've been to space, in front of people who have seen uh, lunar habitat proposals 200 times. Um, and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be showing this to them and be like, and then having a, well, how are you going to deal with, uh, with the pressure? And then you're like, oh, well, you know, we're hoping that this thing is going to get invented. Or oh, how are you going to deal with with, um, uh, with cosmic radiation? Oh, you know, by that, by then, there's going to be a technology that's going to be dealing with yeah. that, right? Okay. So, so, you, <laughs> so you have to, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, you know, because you don't want to look like, like an idiot, uh, <laughs> just like, uh, like coming up with ideas that are like, oh, yeah, that looks nice, but then it's useless. No, I think... Uh, that's on that's moon, a great you know? point, and I think maybe you know coming back down to Earth should. I always wondered, like uh, I remember there was this one crit uh, that I was sitting in, 
and the the architecture school was being constructed on and there was like outside the window there was like scaffolding and builders were like you know building and doing their thing and i was like what if we brought in those guys and got them to sit in the audience like instead of having crits of Mm. just architects and like we can sometimes go into this bubble of provocative architecture stuff um you know having having some of those people in the room to call (laughs) to call you out yeah and that's cool you know like yeah i mean if you want to do this kind of academic kind of provocative stuff that's fine you can do that but then don't ask someone to build it you know (laughs) Uh, because then, then what? If you don't think of something as, as for it to be built, then how are you going to go to someone and be like, "Hey, can you build this?" Yeah. You know, if you have zero consideration for those things, then it's, it's like, okay, uh, if if you thought about this and you think this can be buildable, then why don't you try to build it and then let me know how it goes, <laughs> right? So, it's always at least for the projects that I work on, I, I I'm, I'm always trying to make sure that we're not number one making moves that are purely kind of in the in, in the kind of aesthetic mm-hmm. and number two making things that can be built for example for the olympus project uh i know it's not like um i know it's not exactly the same but we 3d printed uh the stuff that would be 3d printed uh, on the moon right on a 3d printer that we have here and then we saw, okay, so what are the overhang angles? What is all this stuff? Is this, does this, like, at least physically, is there a logic yeah. to, the, to, 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 this, to this form? And, and, and there was, right? It, it, it worked. At least the, the overhang angles and all this other stuff didn't really, um, it, it, they didn't become like a, like a prohibitive thing. Uh, so you can't just, uh, especially with projects like this, where people's lives and are you know at stake, uh, especially on the moon, for example. Like, and if an emergency happens there, you know, what do you do? Yeah. So you can't just uh, sort of say like, oh, what, you know, why is it like this? Not because we thought it would be nice. <laughs> and then we're like, all right, cool. Uh, so now I'm getting you know ten times the radiation that I would get otherwise, and the habitat can only be um, sort of filled with people for two days instead of the, you know, 30 days that it should be. So uh, you don't really have that kind of leeway uh, out there. I think that's also like a a bit of a a secret to like why Big has built so much in a short period of time. Like a lot of our stuff is is buildable or we, you know, there's thinking behind it. Um, Yeah, and there's also, uh, you know, uh, an army of people sitting in this office all day, every day. (laughs) Uh, figuring out how to do these yeah. things, right? Like how how can we do these things? What's the best way to do these things? And so there's a lot of like smart people and dedicated people out here uh, kind of working through all these problems. Yeah, um, I know we've only got you for a bit. So if anyone doesn't have any questions, you can start raising your hands. Um, I think the last thing I was just going to touch on is like. How is it like actually designing uh, these spaces? I know you guys spend a lot of time looking into like the health and well-being, and you know trying to replicate environments on Earth, on the Moon and Mars, because you know you, you're in a kind of sealed uh, environment, and and you know on the on the Moon, for example, you're on the sunny side of the Moon, so there's no night and day. Um, so there was a lot of time like replicating lighting and things like that. So how, how, was, how did that kind of play in like the, the health and well-being? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because the the the, the habitat, of course, would be a sealed environment. So so you wouldn't have the the kind of twenty four hour day uh, kind of day cycle that you have on Earth. The moon does have a day cycle, uh, but that is I think takes like twenty four no twenty nine point four days. Um, where it does a full rotation, and then you'll be you're able to sort of go from you know lunar day to lunar night, um, and the the temperature difference between the lunar day and the lunar night is are absolutely insane. Um, so you can get you can get up to um, I think so if it's sunny, you can get up to plus 176 I think uh, Celsius, and if it's uh, if you're in the in 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 the night side, you can get to minus 243 uh, Celsius, something along those lines. I'm, I might be a little off uh, by a couple numbers, but it's you know it's Factor within that range. Factor 100 isn't so, going to cover you. <laughs> it, no, no, it's you know within within. So so it's like you basically have to completely seal your environment from from the exterior so that means that you're totally disconnected from the normal day night cycle that you have here on earth and that cycle is what regulates our uh, internal clocks um, and how we you know wake up eat um, are awake uh, all this other stuff like your like even your digestive system all of this stuff is kind of organized with that 24-hour cycle so what happens is what we would do is we would create an entire set of uh, kind of lighting controls that would mimic the the light that we get here on Earth uh, in terms of color, uh, color temperature, uh, intensity, and all that stuff, so that the habitat, the entire habitat itself, creates its own sunlight. It creates its own um, uh, day uh, day cycle, right? And, and that's one of the most important things. And we're also doing that with the, with the Mars habitat. We're trying to do that. Um, organize it so that um, the, the Mars habitat is also, which is a Mars analog habitat, it's also sort of uh, enclosed uh, just to simulate what you would have on Mars. And it would work in, in a similar fashion where your lighting fixtures uh, have a, a, a tremendously important role to play in how uh, your day and night cycle is regulated funny thing is, I guess we've all kind of potentially experienced a, a minute idea of what it might be like to live on Mars or, or the moon through COVID and being locked down in our own apartments where we still have the luxury of like looking outside windows, maybe a balcony, yeah. maybe like a park nearby. And, and even if you didn't have those last two things, like a balcony and a park, you started to go a little bit crazy. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like for example for this uh, for this project that we just unveiled with um, with NASA and Icon, uh, which is the project the Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog called Chapia, which is the acronym for that. Um, that's what they will do, right? They will uh, they will have crew members, and you can sign up too if you want. There's a, if you go to the NASA website, you go nasa.gov uh, uh, backslash Chapia. You can sign up. They're recruiting people for year-long simulated Mars missions. Um, and then you can sign up to be there for a year and sort of simulate as if you were um, living on, on Mars. So you have your, you have your you know, 24-minute time delay in communication to the outside. Are you, 
Uh, Are you going to go? You have to preach. <laughs> I, <laughs> I would love to. I would love to go, but I, unfortunately, I think I'm, uh, I'm not a, a U.S. citizen. Oh, yet, so yeah. I I All that NASA it, stuff but, you have to you know. citizen, right? I, I I think that's one of the I I think that's one of the requirements. Maybe not. I don't know. But I I don't know. I I would definitely. I think it's a very interesting experiment. And the other thing is that people are the teams are being formed uh, based on people's psychological profiles, oh, right. just to make sure that in such a long mission, because you're going to be basically in a 1,700 square foot. Yeah. Uh, you do not want of, to accidentally recruit uh, an asshole into that group. <laughs> Exactly. You don't want to do that. Yes. Or two or three. And then what? You know, so so you have to make sure that you, the mix of people in the team right. makes sense for you to be able to actually live through the mission, because what they have found in long term duration missions uh, is that crew morale and crew sort of cohesion and crew performance is very linked to uh, to the to the kind of social uh, aspect of the of, of the relationship between the crew uh, crew members, yeah. and that so makes it's, total sense. It's like an it's a yeah it's a non-trivial part of the of, of, I mean, of the future of kind of it uh, would be the ultimate thing for an architect. Like you you would you would be the guy living what you designed, and then you you realize what you know yeah. if you made any any adjustments, what you could make, and like. I bet, yeah, I mean, I think I would be <laughs> yes. I, that that is true. But you would also yeah. go sort of crazy, what, you know, uh, arguing, why did you move that chair? You know, <laughs> what, what, why, who, like, who left this storage space here? Like, this is a disaster. <laughs> why are you, you know? But, um, but it is true. I, I mean, one thing that we did, I watched a lot of movies. I watched that documentary on, um, I can't remember, my memory is terrible. I, you know, the, the, uh, there was a documentary on this, on the, on this biosphere. Um, I can't remember the name. I think it's on Netflix or well, but anyway. So I, I watched that. I listened to a podcast called Habitat uh, that I think I recommend for all of you guys to go and, and listen to. That's like six episodes, but it just chronicles the life of uh, of um, of an analog habitat and what happens within an analog habitat. And then you'll see that a lot of the stuff that happens there uh, because of you know nobody has ever designed these habitats as as a sort of an architect would, right? People just come in there and be like, all right, let's make four rooms, whatever, and lay it out in whatever way that it is laid out. So you end up with situations where, um, in situations where, for example, when you open your bedroom door, you're immediately in the living room and kitchen with all these people, right? So you never have a moment of, uh, of like being you know, in private, like you're either in your room and that is your only private moment, or you're like in the middle of everyone. Um, so that's one of the things that we change with our habitat where, uh, you know, if you want to go from your bedroom to your to, to the washroom in the morning to shower, uh, you don't have to go through the, the living room or the kitchen. You, you have, there is, a, there is a sort of private area and there are more public area, and then you choose when to be public. You're never forced to be public. I think that's the, like little things like that are going are to make a huge difference when it comes to living in Mars or for a year or whatever with the exact same people, with three yeah. or four people. So um, those are things that you don't really think about as, as like particular skills that are usual, uh, kind of useful, but 
that's what architects think about, and that's what we have to offer to the um, to the to the space enterprise. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know we got a couple of questions, and I think we've only got you for a little bit longer. So, uh, Mayor, I haven't seen you for a little while. How's it going? It's going good. Hi, Oli. Hi, Faisal. Hi, Julian. Nice to see you guys, and it's amazing conversation. Hi, Mayor. Uh, I have one uh, incident to share and one question. So uh, it's interesting, like you guys were discussing about 3D printing. So I attended a conference called IASS, International Association for Shell and Spatial Structures, in Barcelona 2019. And there was a section on 3D printing, and there were like amazing papers and research work about drone printing, self-moldable uh, form work, which is like very sustainable. And there was one professor from UK who said, okay, 3D printing is not the future. And like, oh, that's, that's a strong claim. So I, I talked with him and later and he said, like, uh, if let's say um, if you're like prefabricating a beam, a concrete beam, like using 3D printing layer by layer is definitely going to uh, take more time compared to like a pouring concrete and like settling it. So... He said, like, a hybrid uh, 3D printing plus prefabrication is uh, a way to go. And I thought, uh, and, like, uh, I also worked, like, on a research project where uh, we were, like, doing 3D printing with plastic polymers. And there were, like, few elements which uh, I thought, like, prefabrication will definitely, like, reduce the time for that habitat. So the question I, I have is, like uh, uh, the challenge which we were facing at that time is like for concrete beam and steel, we have a lot of testings for like the stability and the strength of the beam, but we don't have like those testing protocols. Uh, like a lot of tests has been done and for those materials. So how do you deal with that? And like, what's the sustainability aspect of this? Like, do you have like after you dispose that habitat, like, or if something cracks and it goes into the space, like, is it harmful or something? Um, so I, I guess that's a two, two part. So the first, in terms of testing, I know that, uh, for the how, uh, for the projects that have been built, uh, testing like strength, uh, of the, of the, of the, of the, of the tree printing, uh, kind of concrete material has been done. And, you know, so for that, uh, I wouldn't be too concerned. It's just as strong. I think actually, from the test that they have, the compression test, uh, the um, the material that Icon has been using is uh, stronger than concrete. Um, and for the environmental aspect of it, I mean, for example, the lunar habitat is would be built with uh, lunar regolith, right? So it would be basically as you know how they have rammed earth houses and stuff like that, rammed earth uh, walls. So it would be a similar sort of um, uh, similar sort of setup where you just use the, the the material that you have on the moon to build it. Now, granted, uh, lunar regolith is extremely ha- harmful to human health. You can't really breathe it in because um, it is so sharp. Like it's like tiny little uh, grain sands that are extremely sharp, so you're like breathing sort of like little knives. So astronauts would always be sort of shielded from lunar dust, uh, whether it is on the on the hermetically sealed uh, habitat 
or the uh, spacesuits or vessels that they inhabit. So that would be for for the um, for the um, for the lunar habitat. Um, and in terms of health aspects, I think the you know it's the same. It's like a, the same sort of set of ingredients that go into into concrete that are the base ingredients that go into concrete that go into the mix that Icon uses. And I can't really talk much about that um, because I don't, number one, I don't know what their mix is um, because it's proprietary. But what I do know is that uh, they've already built houses in... Um, and habitable spaces, so I'm pretty sure it will be also safe. just from a from a technology point of view. I think like the the comment on like it's not we can't test it and that kind of stuff. I think it's not that difficult. Like once you know the structural properties of a of a print, you can plug that into a a program like Strand or you know computationally analyze it pretty easy. Um, but I I do think there's there's that that material aspect of 3D printing and you know, 3D printing with bio-based materials and stuff like that is definitely evolving at the same time yeah. um, here on Earth, at least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, I know for a fact that uh, you wouldn't be allowed to be building all this stuff if it wasn't uh, yeah. structurally sound. So for sure, uh, there have been tests and all stuff has been sort of tested and, and, and done. And it continues, to, as it continues to evolve, uh, I'm sure... Um, these guys are going to figure out ways to uh, make it stronger and make it even better. Thanks. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Sorry, I just wanted to ask on this. Are there building regulations for, for the moon? For the moon? No, not that I am aware of, no. <laughs> no, but they, I, that's an interesting sort of area of, of knowledge because... Uh, there are treaties about all kinds of stuff, but right now it seems like whoever gets their first. I was going to say, yeah, who would no, want, I think. who would set it? I guess the U.S. has a flag there, so yeah, does exactly. that mean they own it? <laughs> no, that just means that you, you. That just means you got there first, and then, and then you know you can just go build bases. But this is one of those things that can become an opportunity for human beings to sort of. Stop being so sectarian, yeah. so kind of some so kind of like sectarian, and then just like go and be like, all right, so we're all just going to build this thing. Because in the end, if you're in the moon, it doesn't matter if you're Chinese or Russian or 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 American. You know, you're out there. You have to collaborate with each other. Otherwise, you're all more more. What about uh, those things? Like uh, I remember, like a few years ago, it was like kind of a cool thing at Christmas to buy someone a piece of the moon. <laughs> how does that work now like you start to build it yeah, like, no wait a minute that. I got that in like 2010 for Christmas you're building oh, a- yeah. <laughs> yeah you're gonna start yeah you gotta start charging rent for your land kind of oh that was just a complete scam <laughs> you don't own anything <laughs> yeah. I am pretty sure that was a scam I don't think you can sell something that cannot be owned yeah cool I see we got uh, one other question maybe if you, if you have time uh, Julian uh, yeah, I see uh, Z totally. Hey, hey, sorry Hi, if I, uh, I pronounced it incorrectly. Do you want to jump in and uh, ask a question or add anything? Um, yes, I do. So I have a question. So my niece is interested in being, I guess, going into architecture. So my question is, what should, what software should she be looking into as a high schooler? 
that's a good question. Maybe Ollie. Would to, <laughs> I mean, uh, if it's high school, uh, I would start with something fun and playful. There's a program called SketchUp, uh, which is made by Google. Um, a lot of architects do actually use it, but it is like a more of a playful side. Like we don't use it in the office right now, but um, SketchUp, I would say, is for a high school student. Like you know, fun, easy to pick up. You'll understand like the world of 3D modeling from that. Uh, and then, you know, if as they get more serious, I'd recommend a program called Rhino, so or Rhinoceros, it's called. Um, but yeah, SketchUp's kind of a fun way to start all the video game sims and just start building a house there. <laughs> um, Ziada, didn't your niece also want to get into sort of space architecture? I know you're telling me about that. Yeah, she does. So she... So she wanted to know something about, I think it's called an earth ship or uh, oh. something of the sort. But she specifically wants to get into space. Yeah, there are courses on. Yeah. And she wants to know if it's, uh, she wants to know if it's, uh, if, if this is something that she should go into at her age. Is it going to be like valuable in the future? There, so those there are, are already masters in, I know some people reached out who have done masters in space architecture already, which I was kind of like, wow, there's a, you know, you can specialize in that already. I don't. Yeah, there, I met. Yeah, that's oh, that's... I met this girl who um, who has masters in space architecture and has worked with NASA on, you know, designing the sort of like modules for like uh, ISS and things like that, and like integration of. Of different kind of pieces of design into the into modules or whatever. So it is. I think it is a thing that that uh, that exists. But I don't know. It's that, a very that, niche that, I mean, thing still. And I think what you. Yeah, yeah. I would if I were if I were her, I would just get an undergrad in architecture and then get a graduate go to graduate school in architecture design that specializes in um, in technology, and then uh, and then you know learn from that because I. You don't want to come out being able to only design uh, architecture for space because you're going to yeah. miss out on a lot of stuff and a lot of learning that needs to happen before you can, you know, um, like you have to learn how to design stuff here on Earth, how to design stuff for people before you sort of jump in. Plus your, your thesis and like, you know, you can study for, for your undergraduate or your, your master's and you can do a thesis on you know, something that's based on space and, and like yeah. in the same way Julian has done, like educate yourself whilst you're doing. And, and there's some like tutors, I think, that are famous for being more space orientated. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say it's a bit of a niche right now for sure. Yeah. And like the space architecture sort of education remains. Sort I mean, of no a, one's a teaching kind of... it really because no one's done it exactly no, there's no sort of rigor like rigorous or and if there is i i am unaware of it like the, the rigor sort of uh, uh i mean because it the, because the body of knowledge right. just does not exist right like we don't yeah. have the experience of building of building a permanent structure on the moon so i think once that starts becoming a little bit more more sort of uh, like a like a viable possibility then there are going to be people who have the experience and then there are going to be people who can actually teach things that uh, have a relation to well, the reality of it. Actually, I wanted to, sorry, Elia, I wanted to ask about that earlier. Um, so usually when you do a project, you have a precedent study, right? So was there any precedent studies you did? Because obviously there's, there's never been um, 
It's completely new territory, right? Yeah, we did precedent studies. I mean, the NASA, if you remember, I, this is, blows my mind. The last time that there was a there was a man on the moon was something over 50 years yeah, ago, crazy. which is absolutely insane. Because can you imagine, so the promise that people were seeing 50 years ago for human beings, you know, like that promise and that dream of like, caring about science and going out there and like caring about curiosity and caring about all this stuff. Um, and that, so that didn't really uh, sort of go much further. But then, so what happened in that era, in, in, in that time, was that there were a lot of, uh, a lot of studies done on, okay, so if we were to build a base on the moon, how would it look like? What would the components be? Well, the, all this other stuff, right? Uh, so... It does. Uh, there are some extremely limited um, kind of uh, uh, precedents, um, but for building on the moon. But we do have precedents for building in spaces or living in spaces that are sort of that secluded and that uh, cramped, right? So, like nuclear submarines, for example, or like the Antarctica um, um, kind of base or uh, the International Space Station. So we looked at those spaces and see how can we build on the knowledge from those spaces for a, a kind of reduced uh, volume in habitation, right? Um, and, and for building on the moon, actual building, that, you know, that's just going to be a whole new thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, perhaps on a less serious note, this is a pressing question I had. Um, you did a lot of research uh, with NASA. Um, did you find anything about aliens? <laughs> I do get asked do about that every time I talk about this. No, I did not. I did I not. But I, I did not find anything about aliens. But I don't think there's anyone with knowledge of space that thinks that uh, extraterrestrial life is uh, impossible. So... It, but then you have to start thinking about it. Extra, I mean, if you think about the number of planets that exist, it's just insane, right? Like, so there's more planets than there are um, uh, like sand grains, grains of sand. on, on, on yeah. Earth. So just in sheer possibility or sheer just sort of uh, probability, there will be life somewhere. Um, but the question is, like, you know, is it going to be intelligent life? And if it's intelligent life, is it going to be advanced enough to come all the way out here? And that's where there is no definitive proof of. I think when you yet. say it as well, people think of like a green alien dude on a planet, but it, it literally be like a little piece yeah. of bacteria or like. <laughs> it, could just, yeah. it could just be bacteria. Most likely, life on other planets uh, is going to be bacteria or yeah. you know that's things cool. like that. So, but yeah, and, but by the way, is there is there any consideration about the effect that we're going to have on the moon? sort of taking not just us and our material, but also things like viruses and bacteria, archaea, things like I that. I mean, I, the, it's the, for example, there was, uh, you know, that all of the Apollo, actually, I think it was the, the Apollo astronauts, uh, before they went to the moon, they went into a 14... Uh, quarantine. Uh, what is it? Like a 14-day quarantine. And then when they came back from the moon, they also went into a 14-day quarantine because uh, people here were worried that the astronauts would be bringing back lunar viruses Space that we had COVID. no protection for. 
Uh, so the, oh, exactly. Wow. <laughs> they were they were preemptive the space COVID, and that did not come to pass. There was no such thing as space. I mean, COVID it's a vacuum, so nothing. We were, nothing know, exists there, so there's nothing. To, nothing uh, exactly, and the environment is so kind of uh, stale. Like if you put anything that ha- that lives on the on the surface of the moon, it's gonna just die. Uh, anything that lives here on Earth, if you put it out there, is just not going to survive. Um, so I, I don't think there's a lot of concern for for that. And as I said, you know, you're not thinking of the Moon as a as a as a kind of permanent uh, sort of city building project or like a like a like an Earth number two. You're just thinking of it as a way to to kind of expand it's, it's your base. your sort of reach within space. Yeah. Um, for many reasons, but but yeah, I mean, it, I think it, one one of the things that you touched on earlier, uh, Oli, was that people, a lot of people ask, you, like, wait, why would we do this? You know, why would we like go out and and like try to figure this stuff out? It doesn't make any sense. We have plenty of problems here on Earth, and the truth is that we do have plenty of problems here on Earth. But you know, whenever you talk about uh, sending a, a mission to Mars or building something on Mars. None of the money that you're spending actually goes to Mars. None of the money that you're spending actually goes to the moon, right? All of that money, all the resources stay within Earth uh, because you're paying people to design this thing. You're paying people. You're not sort of uh, uh, basically sending literal money and wasting it on on, on Mars or on the moon or whatever. Um, but uh, uh, aside from that, planet Earth is going to come to an end someday. You know, maybe not, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, probably not within thousands and probably not in, within millions of years. But it will come to an end eventually because all planets have life cycles the way that stars have life cycles, the way that people have life cycles. So if human beings do not become a multiplanetary species, they will go extinct eventually. So if we don't do this, uh, you know, if we don't start sort of making like little baby steps towards doing that, then we're going to guarantee that we are sort of a, a kind of one planet wonders uh, in, in, in the universe. Um, and so if that is not a sort of urgent matter or like a, a, a prompt for people to care about this, then I don't really know It is worrying what that is. like these billionaire geniuses are all trying to <laughs> create a second place to live or escaping to their bunkers in New Zealand. <laughs> like, it is worrying that they're... <laughs> I've, heard, uh, I've, I've heard conspiracy theories that, you know, they're doing it because they're going to blow <laughs> they, up the Earth. They're finding a new home. I mean, <laughs> to move to. I don't think we need billionaires to blow up Earth. I think we can, like, just... You know, and just go like just think about what you what happens when you go here in New York to get a to get like a, if you get takeout. There's like 45 different little pieces of plastic that people give you <laughs> just to eat like a muffin, you know. And so it's just like yeah, we can yeah, do that without the need of the without needing billionaires. Plus, if they do that, they'll um, no longer so, be billionaires. Yeah, but but it, yeah, and when if you look at it, really, what billionaires are doing is they it, they're, it's very focused on transportation. Because there's a lot of money to be made on that, so like it's not like SpaceX yeah. is, is losing money, you know. It's, uh, so uh, it, it, it's a, there's a lot of money to be made on transportation. But the problem is that it's an industry that requires a lot of upfront 
yeah. uh, investment and money that you know, a lot of people yeah. are just not willing to risk. But if you have all this cash and there's a potential reward at the end uh, that is pretty large, then, you know, why not? Uh, so there's very few people in the world who can actually undertake that type of investment. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they, they yes. do make it. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, you know, SpaceX is a transportation company. It's Blue is, you know, Blue, what is it, Blue, uh, Blue Origin? Blue Origin. Yeah, they, uh, just think about this, like NASA, after the end of the, um, the, uh, the, the end of the, uh, what's the name of this program? Oh. The, uh, the, where you yeah. had the Challenger, Apollo the Endeavor, and all this stuff, the, um, the, no, no, the Apollo missions were, uh, were before when you would go actually to the moon. And then after that ended, um, and, and Nixon saw that that stuff was just way too expensive, so they started, uh, they designed this, uh, this shuttle uh, that would just go into mm -hmm. the lower Earth orbit. So it was a much sort of cheaper way to continue uh, research on space, uh, but he didn't really have the ambition of actually going to the moon or going anywhere kind of farther out. So when that kind of uh, ended, I think it was in the 90s, there was no way for American astronauts to get to uh, to the to, to the International Space Station. So American astronauts have been um, basically flying on Russian rockets to get to the space station. So they're always riding on uh, riding on the Soyuz to get up there. Uh, and it was only up until like I think it was last year when uh, SpaceX sent the first um, the first yeah. American yeah. astronauts to the ISS that now America, again, has the capability of sending people to space because there was a decade where we had to rely on Russia to send people up there. Um, and that was, you know, not only embarrassing, but also just like, uh, you know, what are we doing, guys? Like, you know, so, so that was a little kind of insane. But uh, now SpaceX is making all kinds of money from bringing American yeah. astronauts to... Um, I think that moment where I saw the SpaceX like boosters come down to Earth and land next to each other, like I watched and I was like, that's an animation. And then mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> that's real? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that, yeah. Blow my, like, like, that blew my mind. I, got, I had goosebumps when I saw that, and yeah. I'm like, this is absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. Like, what, you know, what is going... Like, this opens up a kind of worms that is just absolutely kind of amazing, and it, it, it has, and, and you know, and it did. And it anyway, continue. I know uh, you're you're short on time, so oh. I won't uh, keep you uh, any longer. But um, I will ask one quick last question: Is like, if you get an opportunity, are you going to to Mars? Would you do it? <laughs> I wanted to ask the same yeah. thing. <laughs> would All I go to moon, Mars? I, I mean, if I have for a, for a whole day, uh, uh, if they, if, yeah, <laughs> if they have a site visit. If they have tennis courts, yeah. I would go absolutely. You're a big but tennis otherwise, guy. I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I love playing tennis. Dude, tennis the courts would so be giant. Um, <laughs> they have to be massive, but then you'll be able to jump that so much, and you know. We should make a little virtual be, reality game kind of, of space tennis. Yeah. Of playing tennis on like yeah. a like Actually, a, why like is, a football Why is no one doing that right now? Making a space Olympics video game for like the Oculus or something. There we go. Let's there let's get on it. that. We'll we'll there chat afterwards and make it. a room. <laughs>
Uh, yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll get the idea. All right, Doodle, thank you so much for uh, for talking with us. Make sure everyone to give Julian a follow and uh, here on Clubhouse. He's new to Clubhouse, so welcome him to Clubhouse. And uh, also on his Instagram, I'm sure you'll see more interesting stuff coming from that. So, Julian, thanks again for, having, uh, for coming. Um, we do have a talk next weekend. Same time, we have got uh, Randy Deutsch coming to talk to us about super users and his book, Super Users definitely want to check out uh if you want to read it before you can get it off amazon i don't think it's that expensive but uh it's super interesting about the kind of future of design technology architecture and the future of practice and so we'll be having a chat with him but uh yeah otherwise thanks again julian uh hope everyone has a good sunday and we'll see you next weekend Thank awesome. you, thank you guys. Uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm happy to uh, to join you guys, and and thanks everyone who um, who joined. Um, thank you. Yeah, this, All right. this was thanks, great. Everyone. Thanks, Julian. Yeah, thanks, thanks guys. Bye. Bye.